don't know if that's culturally appropriate, Ryan. Good morning, Redemption Hill Church, and thank you. If you are not a part of Redemption Hill Church and you're taking interest in this particular sermon, I just want to say thanks for tuning in, and hopefully God uses His Word and the preaching of His Word to to bless you and to to grow you. If if you're not a part of Redemption Hill Church, I also want to say, um, and you're kind of in the area, you ever want to check us out? Well, after we kind of get past this COVID-19 thing, we, we plan to meet regularly once again. And if you're not in the area and you're listening in or you're watching, I just want to say, hey, if you're not in a local church, please find a local church, plug in, um, be the recipient of, of grace that exists in your local church, but also be willing to give that out to other people in a local church as well. We, we love the local church. We really believe that God has called all Christians to be a part of a local church. So whether that's here at Redemption Hill Church or somewhere else, I just want to encourage you to get plugged in. Well, that said, we are in the middle of a sermon series called The World Turned Upside Down, and uh, we've been making our way through the book of Acts. Again, if you're a part of Redemption Hill Church, you know this. Uh, we're probably sermon uh, number, I can't know off the top of my head, um, don't quite remember, maybe 26, 27, and we're in Acts 15. So 26, 27 sermons, we're in Acts 15, and we're going to continue to move along and see what God has for us. Uh, you know, before delving into today's sermon, I, I want to note that um, there will be some main issues that I'm going to be wrestling with, but there's also some other secondary or tertiary issues that I won't be addressing in this particular sermon. But I am actually going to do a, a under 10-minute Devo, and if you're not familiar with that, you can go to our website and find out, addressing some issues that, um, that again, are secondary or tertiary. There are issues surrounding polity, and I'm not familiar with that word, that, with that word that's fine. It's like, what, what is the nature of being a part of a denomination, um, you know, as a local church? And uh, those are some issues that actually get addressed in Acts 15, which you heard Shelby read. And I want to touch, I want to uh, touch on those in a different platform. So if you're thinking to yourself, we got apostles here, we got elders, we got this council going on. Yeah, th- there's some stuff going on. Um, but for this sermon, I want to keep the main thing, the main thing, and then on a different platform, talk about polity and why Acts 15 is actually really helpful to help us understand church polity, denominational life, things like that. Well, let me briefly pray, and then we're just going to dive right into this particular passage. Father, thank you that we come and we sit underneath your word, and so we want you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to instruct our lives from your word. And so we trust that you are indeed at work in this moment right now for our good and for the honor and glory of your name. Amen. You know, uh, this particular passage got me thinking this. Uh, Some people are drawn to controversy. (laughs) Um, If you're you're on the internet right now or you're watching the news, there's lots of controversy in our culture right now. And and frankly, it never really goes away. It just looks different. But some of us are drawn to controversy. Some of us love the drama that comes with controversy. Uh, Controversy oftentimes invites debate, right? 
uh, controversy can inflame opinions from, from multiple perspectives, right? Pick any given hot-button issue, and you got multiple people speaking on that particular issue from different perspectives. Uh, like a fly drawn to the light, many of you, and frankly, <laughs> perhaps myself, uh, cannot stop looking at a controversy. You know, the Christian church is not immune uh, to controversy. Uh, my favorite kind of controversies are actually found in church history. Uh, let me tell you about one of them. Uh, throughout church history, we see that theology and doctrine is refined oftentimes because of controversy. For example, the first council of Nicaea in AD 325 took place because there was this wildly unbiblical doctrine making its way through local churches. The heresy that I'm talking about is called Arianism. Don't necessarily need to know that, but just trying to frame out the controversy for you. At stake in the Arian controversy is how we understand something fundamental to Orthodox Christianity, the Trinity, right? Uh, what does it mean for Jesus to be God? That's a particular question that was raised during the debate, during the controversy. What does it mean for Jesus, the Son of God, to have a relationship with God the Father? Arians did not believe Jesus to be divinely equal with God, while the opponents of the Arian controversy clearly read in their Bible that Jesus is equal with the Father. Now, here's the long story short. A bunch of smart guys uh, gathered together, and the heresy was eventually put down. So they get together uh, in this council of Nicaea, and there's debating, there's point, there's counterpoint, and eventually uh, the heresy is put down. The Nicene Creed is the result of the council. Uh, the Nicene Creed being uh, a bunch of doctrines kind of laid out one after another about who God is, and what is the nature of the Son in relationship to the Father? What is the Trinity? The Nicene Creed, which I wholly affirm, is a beautiful string of doctrinal truths. The point is this. There have been times in church history where controversy forces clarity. In the history of church, controversy forces the church to codify what had been previously assumed many times widely assumed throughout the church. But the controversy will force the point, force the clarity, and in many cases, causing, to, causing the church to codify what it is they believe. Under 300 years before Nicaea, the first major controversy in church history broke out. It's recorded here in Acts 15. The controversy is so important that an entire book of the Bible is dedicated to forging the path toward truth while putting down the lies. The book is called Galatians, written by the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul, the same individual we see in Acts 15, fighting and defending the gospel. What is Paul arguing and fighting for here? He argues a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. There's nothing a person can do to work their way toward being justified by God. It's only by God's unmerited grace that anyone can be saved. Now, by the way, 
this foundational doctrine of the gospel that was suppressed for hundreds of years until the 16th century Reformation. If you've ever, ever wondered, what's the big deal about the Reformation? Well, if you love the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of free grace, the Reformation is a huge deal because it was a fight to rediscover the foundation of the Christian faith. It was a fight to rediscover what we read about in Acts 15 and the book of Galatians. I'll discuss the controversy in Acts 15 here in a moment. Uh, first, I kind of want to reset the scene a little bit uh, so that we can see all that is going on and how this massive controversy fits into our journey uh, through the book of Acts, right? How does, how does Acts, Acts 15 fit into what we've read and kind of where we're going? Acts 15 ushers in the closure of what is commonly called Paul's first missionary journey. Um, that assumes that there's other missionary journeys that Paul undertakes, which as we continue to go through Acts, we'll see. Paul's first missionary journey began in Acts 13 when he was sent off from Antioch to Cyprus. And what had become a hallmark of Paul's mission? Well, is that he saw the Gentiles being saved. They were hearing the gospel, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, they were being saved. Dead hearts were coming alive. And this was highly unusual up to this point. Gentiles, non-Jews, being saved. Uh, Paul, on this first missionary journey, did go through the Galatian region, where I think he did write the book of Galatians, what it means to be saved, what does it mean to be justified be before a holy and just God. But here's the deal. What Paul says in Galatians, again, would have been widely controversial to some Jewish converts, which is where the controversy is at. Now, many years later, the controversy has kind of come to a head where it's become such a big deal that the full weight of the council, this council in Jerusalem, is going to debate the issue and then settle the issue. I mean, look at who's present at the Jerusalem council. Of course, we have the Apostle Paul and his companion Barnabas. Uh, they had just come from Antioch because the controversy was raging in Antioch. Uh, there were men from Judah who went to Antioch to, like, to kind of set these Gentile converts straight. Like, you keep believing this, but not. we're going to come in and, you know, we're going to set you straight. All you Gentiles who've become Christians. We also see Peter making a statement at the Jerusalem Council. And then there is James, the actual brother of Jesus. James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem Council... Is, is like an NBA all-star team. That's what I want you to see here. All the big names are out. All the big names are present. And because all the big names are present, we should be clued in to the gravity and the weightiness of the controversy. I think it's important to emphasize we are, we are not talking about an open-handed theological issue. Uh, what they were... Uh, what they were undertaking, what they were debating about at the Jerusalem Council is not an open-handed theological issue. 
they are not gathering together to debate the finer points or the finer details of eschatology. Like, should the church believe in premillennialism and amillennialism or postmillennialism? What's popular with some people is panmillennialism, like it's all going to pan out in the end or whatever. Um, listen, I, I, I have strong views on the end times, but debating the end times, which we call eschatology, is an open-handed issue, I think. It's open-handed. The debate at the Jerusalem Council uh, is not an open-handed issue. It's a closed-handed issue, meaning this is one of the most theologically significant decisions that the council is going to make. It's the, it becomes the foundation of the gospel, the foundation of Christian faith. And so, yeah, they're going to debate. <laughs> they're going to argue. They're going to fight. And that is what we see. So, who is saying what and why does it matter? Let's get our bearings on what is going on in this controversy. One side of the controversy is clearly stated in verse 1. It says this, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's one of the claims being made. Unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. In the first century, there was a segment of people in this Christian movement who did not uh, who did not discredit the person and work of Christ, but they wanted to add to the work of Christ. So they believed that Jesus is the Messiah. They believed in his crucifixion and resurrection, but that wasn't enough. They wanted to add to the work of Christ. This, this segment of the Christian movement functionally wanted a Gentile convert to become Jewish before they became Christian. The question on the table is this. Is a person's salvation all about pure grace or grace plus something else? Does God save a person by grace alone? Or is there something else a person needs to contribute in order to be saved? For some first century Jewish Christians, they wanted the law to be a requirement for salvation, which is why circumcision is highlighted in verse 1. They advocated for circumcision plus grace to equal the gospel. Paul and Barnabas disagreed. The disagreement was so clear that they traveled from Antioch to Jerusalem. Like, okay, we, we need to bring outside counsel in. We need to talk to all the leaders of the church because this isn't going away, and this is actually a big, big deal. They believed, Paul and Barnabas, that God saves all people purely by grace alone. So if you are a Christian, you are saved purely by grace alone. So like I said, all the big dogs at the council give their input into the debate. In verse 4, it says Paul and Barnabas tell their story about all that God had done with them on Paul, Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, they told the council about what happened on the island of Cyprus. They told them what happened at Perga, Lystrum, Iconium, Derby, And what did happen at all those locations and others? Well, Revival was breaking out among the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit was whipping through just like a whirlwind. Along with 
the conversion of many people, Paul and Barnabas were also persecuted by the Jews. At one point while sharing the gospel in Lystra, you might remember Paul was stoned to the point where he almost died. But despite the persecution, the gospel was still being preached to the Gentiles, Gentiles like you and me. And many were being saved. Paul and Barnabas shared their stories in front of the council. And what the council could not deny is that the grace of God was moving in a new way. But not everyone was happy with Paul and Barnabas, right? The debate raged on. The debate had to do with circumcision and the laws we already saw in verse 1 of chapter 15. There were some Jewish converts who did not want to move away from the law, and their opinion would not be easily quelled. Uh, in, the, in a counterpoint to Paul, someone said, look at verse 5, it is necessary to circumcise them, them being the Gentiles, <laughs> again, me and you, many of you and me, Gentiles, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So did you hear that? It is necessary so the Greek word behind the English word for necessary is even stronger in the, the original language. For a person to be saved, it's more like he, he must be circumcised and must keep the law. There must be more a person needs to do than receive the grace of God. That's, that's the claim. That is the claim that has caused the controversy. You know, I, um, I grew up Catholic. And while I was exposed to certain aspects of, of the Christian faith because of my upbringing, the principal points of Catholic, Catholic doctrine land on one side of the debate that we read about in Acts 15. Uh, I mentioned my religious upbringing, and not to bash Catholicism, that's not my point at all. I've got a lot of friends who are Catholics and whatever else have you. But I, I do want to show how the Bible squares with contemporary faith traditions, right? Uh, growing up Catholic, I was told how to do certain things like sacraments in order to merit or receive the grace of God. In order to be saved, I had to you know, be baptized, participate in uh, First Communion, I got to do confirmation, etc. There's other things as well. And then at the end, maybe if I had done enough good works, I was told, maybe I'll get to heaven you know, by being a good person, by doing good works. Now, I understand that Roman Catholic doctrine, in my opinion, is wildly inconsistent at many different points. But the primary question on the table is this. Does a person need to do anything in order to be saved? Or does God save purely by His grace alone, through faith alone? And then a person appropriately responds to what God has done to save them. The Mormons, Jehovah Witness, and many, and frankly, many fundamental independent Baptists are also theologically and at the very least functionally require a person to merit God's saving grace. And yes, I'm going after those fundamentalist independent Baptists. Some of the most graceless churches are those. And my point is this. The Jerusalem controversy is alive and well today. And like Paul and Barnabas, we have to be willing to fight for the gospel of free grace. We have to be willing to debate. We, we cannot ignore how one side of this debate completely dismantles free grace in salvation. 
this local church, Redemption Hill Church, is all about the gospel. Every sermon I preach is about the gospel. The decisions made for this church is because of the gospel. It's an, it's an overflow of the gospel. The very foundation of this church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think I'm just repeating myself over and over again, but then I realize once again that the gospel of Jesus Christ touches every aspect of your life. Pick a topic, right? Pick a topic. The gospel of free grace informs it. You know, I even thought this, the moment that I stopped preaching the gospel at Redemption Hill Church is the moment that the, the church needs to bring in another pastor who's going to preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So yeah, Paul is going all in on the debate. We need to be going all in on the debate as well. Acts 15 gets to the very core of Christianity. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be a Christian? Paul and Barnabas saw firsthand how the gospel of free grace saves the most unlikely sinners and and turns them into worshipers of the one true God, the one true living God. All because of God's grace in the gospel. So Paul and Barnabas have a lot to contribute at the Jerusalem council. Peter, he contributes to the debate as well. It's likely Peter has learned from his experience with Cornelius about what it means for God to save by grace alone through faith alone. You might remember his experience with Cornelius in Acts 10. Peter learned the free grace of the gospel is for the Gentiles. And this, uh, this story, which I won't get into in detail here, it was a massive step for Peter. It was a massive worldview change for Peter. It was massive. It, there was a point in the book of Galatians where, where Paul calls out Peter because you know Peter's uh, not acting in step with the gospel. Right, Peter. Remember, Peter would be like eating food with the Gentiles, and then some of his Jewish Christian buddies come in the room, and all of a sudden he's slipping away from the Gentile supper table. And so Paul even calls out his hypocrisy. His hypocrisy. Well, Peter now understands the diversity of God's kingdom through grace and faith in the gospel. Right, Peter's learned valuable lessons along the way. He declares in verse eight, right. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. Verse 9, And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Not circumcision, not the law, cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter makes three massive statements in these two verses. Here's the first one. The same Holy Spirit that fell upon the apostles and the disciples in Acts 2 is falling, has been falling, and is falling on the Gentiles. In other words, God does not hold back His Spirit from a person or group of people because of their cultural and ethnic background, which is one of the barriers Jewish Christians had to overcome when it comes to the Gentiles. In the Old Testament, God's covenant people is Israel. With, but with the New Testament, the tent is getting a whole lot bigger. It's getting a whole lot bigger. 
God does not hold back his spirit because of a person's language, right? You don't speak Hebrew, that's okay. Don't speak Aramaic, that's okay. You speak Greek, that's fine. God doesn't hold back his spirit because of what language you speak. God does not hold back his spirit because of your religious upbringing, right? God does not hold back his spirit because of the color of your skin. God has poured out his spirit on everyone who has been saved by the grace of the gospel. That's a massive statement for Peter to make, especially to his Jewish friends. The second massive statement by Peter is that God now makes no distinction between his sons and his daughters. Again, we see this in Galatians 3. It says this in verse 26 of Galatians 3, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. There it is again. You're all sons of God, sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor fee or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. For example, bear with me for, for a moment here. No good parent looks at all their kids um, as different as they might be and plays like the favoritism game. You know, I tend to prefer, you know, Jimmy over Sally or um, Mary over Tom or whatever. A good parent does not play the favoritism game and a good God does not play the favoritism game. Therefore, God makes no distinction between the Jewish convert and the Gentile convert. The third significant statement made by Peter is that God has cleansed the hearts of the Gentiles, again, through faith. The reason why this is a like, significant statement is that the purification laws that we read about in the Old Testament, think first five books of the Bible, in particular beginning of the book of Leviticus, those purification laws uh, meant a lot to the Jews. It's through those purification laws in which you were cleansed, Peter is saying, we no longer need to obey the purification laws of the Old Testament because the death of Jesus has once and for all time cleansed his people from everything that is not pure. Peter is pointing out the power of the cross when he makes mention of being cleansed through faith in Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ takes a filthy person and makes him or her clean. Whether you are a Jewish convert or you're like me and you're a Gentile convert, we are clean. That's another massive statement made by Peter. I, what I love about Peter's argument is that he tells all the rule-abiding Jews that they could not even perfectly obey the law. Like, listen to what he says in verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke around the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? <laughs> so, if you could not obey the law, right, if you're guilty because of what the law says, if you can't obey that, then why would you expect a Gentile to obey the very thing that you yourself could not do to begin with? What are you thinking? It's, it's a great argument be, made by Peter. And it shows you the depths of hypocrisy too. And Peter goes right after it. So we got, we got um, Paul, we got Barnabas, we got Peter making statements. Now, uh, if Paul 
and Peter's affirmation of the gospel, free grace is not enough, James really drops the bomb. If these, if these Jewish converts who were advocating for um, circumcision plus grace equals salvation, if, if these Jewish converts had an advocate, they would have thought it would have been James, right? Um, it would have been perceived that at the Jerusalem Council, with James as its leader, as, as the leader of the Jerusalem church, he is like the conservative wing of Christianity, you know, very careful to move from its historical roots. But in his response, he quotes from the prophet Amos and the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, listen to this. James says, he's just going right, right to Scripture. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. The remnant of mankind. Notice what he didn't say, the remnant of Israel. He said the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. He's calling in the Gentiles. And James is like, look, we see it in our Bibles. So Paul gave, an anecdotal, gave some anecdotal evidence of how the gospel is about receiving um, God's unmerited grace. Peter goes after several assumptions of the Jewish converts. He shows the power of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ over the law. And now James goes right to the Bible to seal the deal for the debate. It's God who has a plan for Israel and the Gentiles. It's God who takes diversity and turns it into unity within his family. James affirms the gospel of free grace, but he also understands his own cultural context, which is very winsome of James. He's not naive to his surroundings. The Christian faith is indeed connected to Judaism, right? And because of the connection, there are religious traditions and cultural sensibilities of Jewish converts, right? So he's acknowledging that. Further, Gentiles also need to be reminded that faith in Jesus Christ means understanding the traditions and sensibilities of other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's great to say that at the core of a person's salvation is God's unmerited grace, right? You need to, you need to go headlong into that controversy and fight that that is indeed the core of the gospel. But the gospel does bring together two very different groups of people you know, the Jews and the Gentiles. The gospel does bring together different groups of people. James upholds free grace, but the free grace of the gospel informs how a person also lives their life. How a person may need to lay down certain liberties for another brother or sister in Christ. James gives three areas in which Gentile converts should be aware of regarding their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. James says, hey, do not forget to abstain from things polluted by idols. We read that in our text. There is no room for idolatry in the kingdom of God. That, that particular theological sensibility is alive and well with Jewish converts. And so, hey, hey, Gentile converts, be mindful of that. Put away the idols. Serve the one true God. He also says to abstain from sexual immorality. 
uh, the assumption that would have been received by the Gentiles is that any sexuality outside of the context of one married man and one married woman would be sin. And there was a lot to untangle with in terms of sexuality with many Gentile converts. The last point is also a matter of cultural respect. Uh, let, me, let me give you a contemporary example of what James is trying to point out here. Uh, you have the liberty, perhaps, to eat a bowl of ice cream. You know, you know, go ahead and just go ahead and get the entire drum of ice cream, you know, whatever, whatever your thing is. But would you eat that bowl of ice cream in front of a friend sitting next to you who's confessed that they're clearly over, overweight and has diabetes, right? And they're desperately trying to lose weight. Do you, do you eat the bowl of ice cream? Of course not. You put it down and you go, you, know, you go grab an apple or whatever. What you do with your Christian liberty is what James is getting at in verse 20. He tells them to abstain from certain kinds of meat. It's like he says, hey, Gentile converts, don't grab all the packages of bacon, fry them up, and then bring them to the church potluck. And please be mindful and respectful of your Jewish brothers and sisters and where they're coming from regarding food and what they feel like they can and cannot eat or should and should not eat. They love Jesus but want to maintain some of their traditions. In light of the crux of the gospel and how the gospel impacts your life, here are two important principles being brought together by James in light, in light of what he says about the gospel and then also how should we respond to the gospel. Two important principles that James brings together. Um, these are principles, important principles about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and Jew, uh, Jewish converts and Gentile converts which have really a direct impact on your life, my life. First, as under grace... Right? And these are grace-filled principles. Being under grace, we are to not make non-biblical requirements for others. We've got to be careful not to do that. Do not make tradition, your preferences, or, or even cultural background a primary issue. And don't, make, don't turn them into close-handed issues. You know, we talk about preferences um, for a moment. We, are, we can so easily push our preferences on other people. or We can push our opinions on other people. Uh, we have parenting preferences. We've got eating preferences, and preferences in how our kids should be uh, educated. There are political preferences, you know, essential oil preferences, worship and song preferences in the church, and the list goes on and on and on. And if if you know me, if you're watching this, you're part of Redemption Church. You know me. I got opinions. I got opinions. I have preferences. You know that. But anytime a preference is pushed. As an addition to the gospel, legalism runs rampant. Listen, I'm not saying you cannot hold a preference or tradition or an opinion. Like I said, I surely do. I absolutely do. But all this falls underneath and is informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and not the other way around. So please, be careful, Christian, to not impose um, non-biblical preferences or requirements on other Christians. You've got to keep the main thing, main thing, which is that closed-handed theological issue, the gospel of free grace. 
So that's one, I think, grace-filled principle that we can learn from this particular passage. The second grace-filled principle um, is that while we're living under grace, that is, we gladly restrict our freedom for the sake of others. Now, this can rub up against some, some people's perspective about what it means to be American, right? Um, I mean, I'm preaching this sermon on the 4th of July weekend, which is all about, all about celebrating our freedom as Americans. We're celebrating the liberties we have because we live in America. But here's what I want you to see. Because you are first a citizen of heaven, because you're a part of God's kingdom first, there might be times God is calling you to restrict your personal freedom for the sake of someone else. In particular, for the sake of a brother or sister in Christ. Right? That gets back to my ice cream example. Can you, can you put the ice cream down because your friend sitting next to you has diabetes, is overweight, and is trying to lose 50 pounds? Go get an apple. Grace allows you to lay down a privilege or a liberty or a preference out of love for another person. For a moment, consider how this grace-filled principle can have an effect on a husband and a wife, how this grace-filled principle can affect parenting, it can affect relationships between friends. I mean, this particular principle made me think of Philippians 2. It says this in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Like, do nothing from those things, but in humility, do what? Count others more significant than yourself. There will be times when you are called as a Christian to lay down your preference or liberty, which is an expression of counting another person more significant than yourself. The gospel of free grace allows you to live a life of grace. The gospel of free grace gives you the opportunity to demonstrate grace to other people. Acts 15 isn't just about keeping the unmerited grace of the gospel as the only means of justification, right? This close-handed theological issue. Acts 15 tells us what it looks like to live the Christian life justified and free in Christian community, in the church. From this passage, we see how Christian community not only centers on the gospel of free grace, but it also flows from the gospel of free grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that because of Christ, um, because of um, unmerited grace, there's nothing we can do to be saved, but it's purely by grace alone, through faith alone. We thank you that faith in Christ has set us free. And set us free not only of the power of sin, but set us free to live grace-filled lives in the church and to extend that grace to all people that we come in contact with. And that's for our good, but also for the honor and glory of your name, we pray. Amen. Cut! Um, to say I'm sweaty would be an understatement.